the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. Today, I'd like to begin a study of the third chapter of Genesis. I call this study, The Descent of Man. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The third chapter of the book of Genesis is the pivot of the Bible. If we were to take this chapter away, the rest of Scripture becomes meaningless. With the exception of the fact of creation, we have here the record of the most important and far-reaching event in the world's history, the entrance of sin. Needless to say, it's impossible to understand the rest of the Bible without understanding Genesis chapter 3. God's marvelous plan of redemption fulfilled in Christ is meaningless if the events of Genesis 3 are not historical. If this narrative is mere mythology, we're left with no record of the introduction of sin and violence into human history. When God's six-day work of creation was complete, everything in the world was very good. There was nothing out of order. No pain, no suffering, no disease, no struggle for existence, no disharmony, no sin, and above all, no death. But things are not very good in the world now. In the physical realm, everything tends to run down and wear out. In the living world, each animal is engaged in a perpetual struggle against other animals and against disease, as well as the universal process of aging and decay. Culturally, one civilization after another seems to rise for a time, then decline and die. In the spiritual and moral realm, each individual invariably finds it easier to do wrong than right, easier to drift downward than to struggle upward. The world is full of hatred, crime, war, pollution, selfishness, corruption, evil of all kinds. Something has gone wrong with God's perfect creation. What has gone wrong? The only truly reasonable answer to this question is found here in the third chapter of Genesis. The Apostle Paul, referring to this chapter, says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Later he says, For the creature, and that's actually creation, 
for the creation was made subject to vanity or futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature, creation, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, literally decay, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. At the opening of Genesis chapter 3, the first man and the first woman, Adam and his wife, were still the only representatives of the human race present in the world. The woman had spent her entire lifetime up to that moment in the beautiful paradise home that the Lord God, the pre-incarnate Christ, had planted for her and for her husband. Most of Adam's life had been spent there also. We can't know exactly how much time had elapsed since the six-day creation period when Adam was created, or since the time that the woman had been formed from a part of Adam's body. The inference seems to be that the time period had been relatively short. Certainly some weeks had passed. Perhaps the earth had been in existence for several months, or even several years. The only exact time marker that we have for this early period of Earth's history is the statement of Adam's age at the time of the birth of Seth that's found in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. Here we're told, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. Therefore, one hundred and thirty years went by between the sixth creation day and the time of the birth of Seth. During that time, Adam and his wife had disobeyed God. They had been driven from the Garden of Eden. Cain and Abel had been born and had grown to adulthood. Cain had slain Abel, and Cain had become a rebel against God and a wanderer in the world. So, at most, only a few years had gone by since the creation period when these events described in Genesis chapter 3 took place. Between the time that God pronounced the creation very good on the sixth creation day and the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3, a rebellion had taken place in heaven. The great angel Lucifer had risen up against God in the third heaven with his five I wills that are recorded in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 17. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? and that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. One-third of the created angels of heaven had followed Lucifer in this rebellion. Both the leader and his followers had been cast downward. Sin had become a reality in the universe. Lucifer, the son of the morning, was now Satan, the adversary, and the devil, the slanderer. Satan was now an angel of evil, and his will was set directly in opposition to the will of God. His goal was now to oppose the things of God, and his attention was turned toward the earth and toward the man and woman that God had given dominion over the earth. 
When God planted the Garden of Eden and placed the man Adam there, he included a test that was to determine the history of the human race. God placed two unique trees in the center of the garden. One of these trees was the tree of life, and the other was the tree of death. The second tree God designated as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These two trees were not a part of the three classes of vegetation that God had created to cover the newly raised continents of the earth on the third creation day. These trees were special creations of God, one of a kind, and the seeds of these trees were not contained within the fruit they bore. These two trees were not to reproduce after their kind. The test that God had provided for Adam was centered in the second tree. It's most likely that this test tree was planted in Adam's garden home after sin entered the universe. If this is so, then the fall of the angel Lucifer came just before the Lord God planted the Garden of Eden. The Lord God gave Adam a definite command concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This command is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Adam was created in a state of innocence. He was innocent until he had sinned by disobeying the command of the Lord God, his Creator. However, he could not be righteous until he had been faced with a test in which the possibility to sin existed. If he, by his own will, had refused to disobey God under the condition where disobedience was a possibility, then he would have been righteous. Therefore, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood as the tree of death. If Adam were to disobey God and eat the fruit thereof, then death was to be the certain result. However, beyond the tree of death stood the tree of life. Had Adam been able to get beyond the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a state of righteousness, the Lord God would have permitted him to partake of the fruit of the tree of life, and eternal life, both spiritual life and physical life, would have been Adam's possession. Adam had been given dominion over the earth by God his Creator. Since Adam held this dominion, then the one to whom Adam offered his allegiance was the sovereign over the earth. In those early days before his fall, Adam's allegiance was to the Lord God, and consequently the Lord God was sovereign over the earth. But when Adam disobeyed God and followed the instructions of Satan, then his allegiance was directed to Satan. Satan became the sovereign over the earth. He became the prince of the powers of the air. Therefore, Satan was playing for large stakes when he made that fateful appearance in the Garden of Eden. If he were to succeed in the temptation, then he would be sovereign over the earth. Adam would have sold out his dominion to this angel of evil. That dominion could be redeemed only by a kinsman redeemer of the human race, one who was a kinsman, one who held something of sufficient value to make redemption possible, and one who was willing to accomplish such redemption. Only one person in all the universe met all of these qualifications. The redemption of the world could be accomplished only if the Lord God himself took on the flesh of humanity to become a kinsman to Adam, and if he poured out his lifeblood in payment for Adam's lost dominion. Satan did not believe that this would be done. So he used all of his power to deceive and to lead in the ways of evil to set up a situation that would lead to Adam's disobedience of God. This was the historical situation that existed at the time of the opening statement of Genesis chapter 3. The drama that changed all of human history is about to begin. 
My time is gone for today. We'll consider the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3 as we continue with this study of the descent of man on the next broadcast. I welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I enjoy this time each day when we can gather together around the Word of God. We're involved in a study of the third chapter of the book of Genesis. I call this study The Descent of Man. Let's open this second message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In his rebellion against God, the fallen angel, Lucifer, or Satan, turned his attention toward a conquest of the earth. It was Satan's desire to become the god of this earth. Adam had been given dominion over the earth, and if Satan could turn the man's allegiance from God to himself, then he would become sovereign over Adam's inheritance. Satan was aware of the test of righteousness that God had placed within Adam's reach in the garden paradise. In the midst of the garden, along with the tree of life, stood the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If it were possible to arrange a situation in which Adam could be enticed to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thus disobey God in obedience to the will of Satan, then Adam would become the servant of this prince of darkness. In turn, this fallen angel would become sovereign over Adam's domain. Adam had been created in the image and likeness of God. As a part of that image and likeness, God had given him a free will. Adam was not a robot. He had the ability for either obedience or for disobedience. Adam had been created in a state of innocence, not in a state of righteousness. In order for Adam to be righteous, he must face the opportunity to sin, but by his own will turn away from that opportunity. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood in the midst of the garden within Adam's reach. However, God had commanded the man not to eat of the fruit of this tree. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Apparently it was not possible for Satan to approach Adam and his wife on a purely spiritual plane while they were in a state of innocence before God. In this state, the eternal spirits of these two human beings were in communion with God, and they were not accessible to direct spiritual communication from the angel of evil. He had, come to, he had to come to them on the physical plane. But Satan, as an angel, was spirit. He was not and is not the possessor of a physical body. In order to communicate with the two members of the first human family on the physical plane, it was first necessary that Satan acquire a physical body. He could not possess the body of an unfallen human being, but if there was no resistance on the part of the creature chosen, he could possess the body of one of the lower animals. His attention was turned in that direction. Man is the only one of God's earthly creatures that is the possessor of an eternal spirit. It is the soul that is the seat of conscious life. All members of the animal kingdom have souls. The soul is one part of man's makeup that he shares in common with the lower animals. But man, 
who was created in the image and likeness of God also has as the highest part of his tripartite makeup an eternal spirit that gives him both a God consciousness and also the ability to communicate with God. The soul, as the seat of conscious life, is also the seat of intelligence. All of the animals have souls, and to varying degrees, they have intelligence. It's only in spiritual things that the great difference between man and the lower animals becomes evident. There are many passages in the Bible that make clear the fact that evil angels, spirit creatures, can inhabit the bodies of the lower animals. While those bodies are inhabited, the spirit being can exercise control over the animal. One example of this phenomenon is found in Mark chapter 5. This is the record of the Lord Jesus Christ's encounter with the demoniac of Gadara. When the Lord had commanded the legion of demons to come out from this man, their spokesman asked permission to go into a herd of swine that was feeding nearby. The Lord granted them permission to do so, but the souls, the seats of conscious life, of these swine remained sufficiently in control of the body to allow themselves to run into the lake in mass suicide. This incident does confirm the fact that evil spirit beings can possess the bodies of the lower animals. There were only two human beings present in the earth in the time of Satan's desired conquest. Both of these were in a state of innocence before God. Satan could not enter into the body of the man or of the woman in order to accomplish his evil purpose. So he looked toward the kingdom of the lower animals over which Adam had dominion for a body to serve his needs. The animal which Satan chose was the serpent. Apparently the serpent had power to resist the entrance of the evil spirit being into his body, but he failed to exercise this power. Later, the Lord God pronounced a judgment against the physical animal himself. If the serpent had simply been the unwilling victim of the devil's possession of his body, then it does not seem likely that God would have brought judgment. In the perfect world, over which Adam originally had dominion, all of the creatures would have had the power to resist the principalities and powers of evil from the spiritual domain. The serpent did not exercise that power of resistance. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word subtle means crafty or cunning. God's word reveals to us that this denizen of the original pre-flood world was a highly intelligent animal and that he was capable of craftiness in his mental processes. Since he was more subtle than any beast of the field, we can understand why Satan selected this animal out of all the others in the earth when he decided to occupy a physical body for the temptation of the woman. Once in possession of the serpent's body, Satan was ready for his encounter with the mother of the human race. Just what was this animal that Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 refers to as the serpent? The Hebrew word is nakash. This is the generic name for the reptile kingdom. It's not the specific word which refers to a poisonous viper. That word is sarap, and it's the word used in the mention of the fiery serpents of Numbers chapter 21. Another Hebrew word is used to refer to the serpents of Exodus chapter 7. That word is tanin, and it actually means dragons. Tanin is probably a reference to the crocodiles that inhabited the Nile River. The word nakash refers to representatives of the general phylum of cold-blooded animals that we call reptiles. 
although it can refer to those legless creatures that we call snakes, its meaning is not confined to just that branch of the reptile phylum. It can properly be used to refer to lizards, alligators, crocodiles, and other similar creatures. The Nakash, which was possessed of Satan and which was involved in the temptation of Adam's wife, was not, at the time of the temptation, a legless creature. He later became a legless creature as a part of the judgment that God pronounced upon him and upon his descendants after him. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, we read God's words to this creature that had permitted himself to become the implement of Satan. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. We must assume that the serpent, as the woman encountered him in the garden, was a creature that had legs and that walked upon them in the same way as do the other animals. As a part of the curse upon this beast, the Lord God brought about a change in the serpent's physical makeup. This particular serpent and his seed after him became legless snakes. There is something that we can't avoid brought out in these opening verses of Genesis chapter 3 concerning the relationship between the man Adam and his animal domain in that original perfect world. That relationship was vastly different from that which exists between man and the animals of today. Some of the members of the animal kingdom of that early perfect earth were capable of speech. These animals had the power to communicate verbally with the first man and woman. In the opening verse of Genesis chapter 3, we are first introduced to the serpent. Then we're told that he spoke to the woman. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? These words, coming from the mouth of the serpent, apparently did not startle the woman at all. She simply answered the question that was put to her. The fact that the serpent had the power of speech did not seem unusual to her we can conclude that Adam's wife had often spoken with many of the members of the animal kingdom. In the original perfect state of creation, God had given many of the kinds of the animal kingdom power to converse with man. This condition of things probably continued up until the time of the great flood. The prophecy of Isaiah strongly suggests that this order will be restored during the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back to this earth. For his evil work of temptation and deception, Satan selected the body of the highly intelligent serpent for his temporary residence. The animal chosen did not resist this intruder from the spirit world. He allowed the possession to take place. Once in control of a physical body capable of the power of speech, Satan was ready for his encounter with the first woman. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Let's continue our study of the descent of man by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan did not choose the man Adam, the federal head of the human race, for the temptation. In order to succeed in his conquest of the earth, it was necessary for the federal head of the human race to sin willfully with full knowledge of the choice that he was making. The man's will had to be set in opposition to the will of God in order for the sin to be deliberate and in order for Adam's allegiance to be transferred from God to Satan. Satan realized that if he could deceive the woman and cause her to disobey the command of God by subterfuge, then he could place her in a position of separation from the man. Adam would be faced with a choice which he would have to make deliberately while he was fully aware of the consequences of his willful decision. If he chose to remain obedient to God and did not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would be separated from the woman who was his wife, the bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. But if he chose to disobey God and eat of the fruit, he could remain with the woman, but he would be separated from God he would have transgressed and fallen into sin. Therefore, if the woman could be made a slave of Satan by subterfuge, then she would become the bait to lure the federal head of the human race to sin against God and to become a slave of Satan also. As soon as Satan became sovereign over Adam, then Adam's dominion became his domain. Therefore, it was imperative that Adam's allegiance be deliberately turned from God to the tempter. Thus, Adam's wife became the object of Satan's wiles. The spirit of Satan entered into the animal body of the serpent, and he maneuvered so as to encounter her at a time when she was not in the company of her husband. The Lord God had formed the woman from a portion of the body of Adam after Adam had already been placed in the Garden of Eden and after some interval of time since the six-day creation period. Adam had spent much more time in intimate fellowship with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, than had his wife. And it was to Adam that the Lord God had given the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam could have strengthened his wife at the time of the temptation had he been present. He was directly familiar with the command that the Lord God had given, and it is not as likely that he would have been misled by Satan's intimations as was his wife. Satan divided to conquer. When the encounter came, it's most likely that the woman was standing near the tree that bore the forbidden fruit and that she was gazing at it. Perhaps she was wondering at that very time why she and her husband had been commanded not to eat of that fruit. And perhaps also she was trying to imagine what kind of taste was associated with that beautiful fruit hanging there before her. Perhaps she herself was wondering just what God's motives were for forbidding this fruit. It was then that the servant, the servant spoke to her. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Critics of God's word. Those who would like to relegate this historical account of the fall of man into the realm of mythology have often scoffed at the idea that a serpent could approach the woman, speak to her in a human voice, and, by his persuasiveness, influence her into disobeying God's commandment. These critics say that the story has all the elements of a fairy tale, a talking animal, 
a tree that yields fruit with magical properties, and an enticement to revolt against something that is totally good by something that is totally evil. The idea of the talking animal has received the greatest ridicule. The question that often comes up is, why was not the first woman surprised and frightened when the serpent opened his mouth and spoke to her? Why did she not suspect that something was wrong as soon as this bizarre incident started? Why did she stand there and not only carry on a conversation with this beast, but also let him influence her to disobey God and partake of the fruit? There was a very good reason as to why the woman saw nothing unusual in the conversation that took place between herself and the serpent. She saw nothing unusual about it because it was not unusual. She had conversed not only with serpents, but with many other animals of that primeval world many times previously. This incident in the Garden of Eden provides powerful evidence that the Lord God, in the original creation, had given many of the higher orders of animals the power of speech. Adam had spoken to the animals as the Lord God had brought them before him while he was naming them. Many of the animals had spoken to him also. Conversation between these two first parents of the human race and a number of members of the animal kingdom which were a part of their dominion was a common thing before this incident of the temptation took place in the Garden of Eden. It's not unlikely that Adam's wife had conversed with this same serpent at many times in the past. It's even possible that the two of them were close friends and that they had spent many hours in companionship and in conversation. Certainly there was no reason for the woman to be afraid of this animal. In that original perfect world, Adam and his descendants had been given dominion over all of the animal kingdom. There was no enmity between man and the animals. There was no possibility that any of the animals could, would strike out against any member of the human race because God himself had subordinated these living creatures to man. All of the animals were sustained by vegetable foods. There was no eating of flesh in that first world. Before the temptation and the fall of man, there was no principle of death in the earth. The man and the woman were not subject to physical death. The animals and plants of their dominion were also not subject to physical death. Vegetable food can be consumed by man and by the animals without the necessity of the death of the plant that produced the food. This is not true with respect to the eating of animal flesh. Before the flesh of an animal may be consumed as food, the animal must first die. Therefore, the eating of animal flesh by any creature of God's creation was not a principle of that first world. God established enmity between man and the animals, and also he established the principle of the eating of animal flesh as a part of the economy of the post-flood world. We read of this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every living thing that moveth shall be meat, food, for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Before the flood, no creature in the earth ate the flesh of any other creature. God originally gave the gift of speech to many of the animals of the primeval world. This gift was taken away, either at the time that God pronounced a curse on Adam's domain as a result of his sin, or at the time of the great flood. In the present economy, animals do not have the power of speech. However, this is not proof that they have never had that power. 
There's another passage of scripture that strongly hints that the lack of speech capability among some of the higher animals may have not been the order of things from the beginning. In the story of Balaam, found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, there is an incident in which Balaam was riding upon his beast of burden on a narrow road through the vineyards. His mission was contrary to the will of God, and we're told that the angel of the Lord stood in his way as an adversary against him. Balaam could not see the angel with the drawn sword, but the animal on which Balaam was riding did see him. When the ass refused to go forward and turned aside into the field, Balaam struck her. She tried again to go forward, but the angel with the drawn sword still stood in the way. This time she attempted to turn the other way, but in so doing she crushed Balaam's foot against a wall. Balaam struck her again. In the third attempt to go forward, the path was still blocked. As the animal fell down under Balaam, he struck her a third time. Then we're told, And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me. I would that there were a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? The remarkable thing about this passage is that before the animal spoke, we were told, And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. The implication seems to be that the opening of the animal's mouth was a restoration of a condition that once existed. The Lord opened an animal's mouth for speech. A previous act of the Lord in which he closed the animal's mouth would seem to be assumed. The little ass was a descendant of a line of animals that at one time apparently had the gift of speech. The conversation that followed is declared to be between Balaam and the ass. It is not suggested that the angel is speaking through the animal's mouth. Both the animal's conversation and the intelligence that produced the conversation is within the animal herself. This is powerful evidence that the animals of our present world do not have the full capacity that God once gave to them. I see by the old clock on the wall that my time is gone. We'll continue our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. So glad of this opportunity to come into your home with another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of the story of Adam's fall as it's recorded in the third chapter of Genesis. I call this study The Descent of Man. Let's open this fourth message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? If we were to state the serpent's words in modern English, they would go something like this. Is it really true that God has said that you may not eat of every tree of the garden? The question is calculated to match the thoughts that were no doubt already half-formed in the woman's mind. 
The question includes the subtle idea that God has been unfair to this first human pair. I'm sure that the serpent's inflection was such as to give the idea that he was almost incredulous, that it was even possible that God would have been so unfair as to have withheld some of the fruits of the garden from these creatures that were made in his own image and likeness. The idea that God is unfair and that he has restricted the man and woman only for the purpose of preventing them from having the fullest enjoyment of their garden paradise is very carefully woven into the initial words. Is it really true that God has said that you may not eat of every tree of the garden? The implication of the question is, is it really true that God has withheld something from you from among the trees of this beautiful garden? Has God really restricted you from exercising complete freedom in the selection of your food from the trees? Has God really been that unfair? The serpent's implication that God has been unfair and deceitful in his dealings with the man and woman makes its mark on the woman's thoughts. Probably a question as to the necessity of God's restriction had already crossed her mind before the serpent spoke. These words came at just the opportune moment to make that thought sprout and take root. She most likely reasoned that if the serpent felt that God's restriction was unfair, then perhaps her fleeting thoughts along this same line were not so far afield. The serpent's opening question succeeded in causing the woman to question the integrity of God. The woman's answer to the serpent's question reveals that he had been successful in placing that seed of doubt in her thoughts. She attempted to repeat the commandment that the Lord God had given to her husband Adam, but in her attempt to quote God, she misquotes him. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. In order to justify her growing belief that God had been unfair in placing a restriction on the activities of herself and her husband, the woman adds to the restriction that God had made. The Lord God had never restricted the man and woman from touching the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's command to Adam was, Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Even though the woman was not present at the time that this command was given to Adam, there is no valid reason to assume that she simply did not know the exact nature of the restriction. She added to God's restriction in order that she might further justify and nourish the growing feeling in her mind that God was unfair. The evil spirit personality controlling the serpent was quick to note that his implication had produced the desired effect upon the victim of his temptation. No doubt, Satan was keenly aware of the exact extent of the restrictions that the Lord God had placed upon those progenitors of the human race. The woman's adding to the restrictions imposed by God and her taking away from the consequences that God had revealed as the sure result of violation of the restriction, God had said, Thou shalt surely die, not lest ye die, clearly told Satan that the woman had taken the first bait and that she was, even at that moment, harboring doubts as to God's fairness and integrity. She had also begun to harbor doubts as to the truthfulness of God's word. Because of the success of his first subtle thrust, the tempter was now prepared to come out with an open accusation against God. 
His first question included only an inference that God's integrity, fairness, and truthfulness might be questionable. But in light of the woman's answer to his first question, Satan now openly called God a liar. He stated that the reason that God had placed restrictions on the woman and on her husband is that God desired to withhold something from them that would add to their happiness and well-being. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The tempter openly said that God's word is untrue. God had said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But Satan said, Thou shalt not surely die. In other words, he said, God lied to you. Eating of the fruit of this tree will not bring death upon you. God only said that to scare you. The reason that God told you this lie is that he knows that if you eat this fruit, you will become as he is. You will have a discernment between good and evil. So therefore, you yourselves will become as gods. The Lord God desires to keep you in your place so that you'll be subordinate to him and dependent upon him. The fruit of this tree actually will benefit you and your husband, but God has told you not to eat of it because he does not want you to enjoy those benefits. Therefore, he has frightened you into obeying his command by lying to you. Ye shall not surely die. By these words, Satan revealed his true position as the adversary of God. He also verified those two parts of his character that our Lord Jesus Christ brought out so many years later as he faced those hostile Pharisees during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, we read the Lord's words to this group. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. As the adversary spoke those words to the first woman, he spoke the first lie. He said, Thou shalt not surely die. Then he went on to speak further lies about God's character and motives. There was no truth in this evil spirit being, and he became the father of all lies from the moment he spoke those initial falsehoods. He also became a murderer because his lies led to the certain death of Adam and his wife and all of their offspring. That death that God had warned would be the sure consequence of their disobedience. The Lord's words to the Pharisees tell us that murder was the motive that led to Satan's fathering of the lie. He desired and premeditated the spiritual death of the race of men that the Lord God had created in Adam. Adam's wife chose to believe Satan's lie, and the added appeal that his word gave to the tree was sufficient to cause her to take the fruit and to eat of it. We're told that all three of the basic motivating forces of the physical realm were active in the decision which led to the woman's breaking of God's commandment. These three worldly motivating forces are enumerated by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 reads, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, the tree with its fruit appealed to the bodily appetite. 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. The tree with its fruit was beautiful, and it had aesthetic appeal to the eyes through its beauty. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. The woman had a desire to increase her status in life, to become wise, and to, as Satan had promised, become as a god. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. No doubt those first two motivating forces were strongly present before the woman even was even approached by the serpent. She had previously looked upon the tree and was most likely looking upon it at the time of her encounter with the serpent, and she had found it appealing. The fruit looked as though it would be good to eat. Very likely it had a pleasant bouquet, which aroused her appetite for food. She saw that the tree was good for food, and therefore there was already a strong appeal to the lust of the flesh. The tree and its fruit was beautiful to look upon, and the woman greatly enjoyed the beauty of this plant. It thus had a strong appeal to the lust of the eyes. But it was Satan's temptation that brought that third worldly motivating force strongly into the foreground. Satan had said, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There is the appeal to the pride of life. Eating of the fruit, according to Satan's lie, would bring an improvement in her status of life. She saw that it was a tree to make one wise. She desired to move upward, to be a goddess. She was motivated by the same kind of pride that led to Satan's five I wills of Isaiah chapter 14. The old adage says, Pride goeth before a fall. And that adage was certainly proved true by both Satan and the woman. Once again, my time is gone. We'll continue with this study of the descent of man on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. So good to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Today we're continuing our study of the third chapter of Genesis, a study that I call The Descent of Man. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. The lie that the serpent spoke to Adam's wife produced the result that the evil spirit personality who inhabited that animal body had desired. The first woman believed Satan rather than God. The three areas of desire that were a part of her human nature caused her to partake of the fruit and in so doing to directly disobey her creator. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. The lust of the flesh, the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life, a tree to be desired to make one wise. All acted together to cause the first woman to take the fruit, and to eat of it. The moment that she took that first bite, she became spiritually dead. She died the second death, which is separation from God. She also began to die the physical death, which is the separation of the spirit and soul from the body. Satan's temptation was successful. Prompted by the adversary's subtle suggestions and deliberate lies, and by the worldly motivating forces present within her, Adam's wife took the fruit. 
She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. The moment she tasted that fruit, she died spiritually. She was separated from the Lord God, her Creator, by this act of sin. She could no longer stand in God's presence. She was naked, spiritually and physically. Her allegiance and affection were no longer toward God. She was, in every sense of the word, a fallen woman. Not only was she separated from God, but she was also separated from her husband. During that interval of time between her tasting of the fruit and her husband's tasting of the fruit, she was alone in her fallen estate. Her eyes were opened so that she was not only able to see evil, but evil also had a measure of appeal for her. But she was alone in the physical sphere. The only companion that she could know intimately in her newly acquired position was that spirit being who had helped to bring about her downfall. She did not want to remain alone in her fallen estate. She wanted her husband there with her, so she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Adam may have come upon the scene in time to see his wife taste the fruit. It's most likely that he did. But whether this was the case or not, he was immediately aware of what his wife had done. He was aware of the barrier that separated himself and the woman. Adam had no power to bring his wife back into spiritual life. He could not bring her back into the estate which he still occupied. He was faced with a choice. He must either be separated from this woman who was his wife, or he must be separated from God, his creator. He must also die the spiritual death if he were to continue as one with his wife. Adam chose disobedience to God and spiritual death rather than life and separation from the fallen woman. His wife gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The moment Adam tasted the fruit, he also died spiritually. Our first parents had together fallen from the estate of their creation. They were both spiritually dead, and neither was fit to stand in the presence of God. Evil had now become a part of their nature, and had become a part of the race that they were to head. The entire human race died spiritually that day in the paradise garden that had been planted by the Lord God. Man's allegiance was turned from God to Satan, and Satan became the prince of this world. It should be emphasized that the moment Adam and his wife disobeyed God and partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the results were instantaneous. God had said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Each of our two first parents underwent spiritual death. The scriptural definition of death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit, soul, and body from God. As soon as the experimental knowledge of evil was a part of the makeup of this first couple, then they were separated from the holy God that created them. Thus they died a spiritual death. The fact of spiritual death was also immediately apparent in the physical realm. In the temptation of the woman, the serpent had told her, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. What the tempter failed to tell the woman is that the opening of the eyes to know good and evil was a manifestation of the spiritual death that was to be the result of disobedience. In the state of innocence in which Adam was created, and into which his wife was later miraculously born, there was no experimental knowledge of good or evil. Good 
is only definable and understandable as it stands in contrast to evil. Before his act of disobedience, evil was not a part of Adam's nature, and therefore he had no understanding of good. However, as soon as sin became a reality in his nature, and sin is defined as a transgression against the revealed will of God, then both good and evil became clearly discernible to him. In that particular statement concerning the opening of the eyes, the serpent did not lie. He simply concealed a part of the truth. That truth was that the opening of the eyes to good and evil was actually a manifestation of spiritual death. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in disobedience to God's command not to eat of it, brought an end to the innocence of the first man and first woman, and of the entire race that sprang from Adam's seed. The eyes of this human pair now looked upon the things of God's creation with the ability to see images that were not previously discernible to them. They now had experimental knowledge of both good and evil. Because of this knowledge, their eyes were capable of seeing ugliness, where previously only beauty was discerned. The first thing that came clearly in focus in their newly acquired vision was their own unclothed bodies. Prior to the time that this first human pair had eaten of the fruit that God had forbidden to them, they had never worn any clothing on their bodies. We read previously in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. In their state of innocence, physical coverings for their bodies were not a necessity. God himself provides all of the covering that's needed for those creatures who are not separated from his glory. God himself clothes the animals of this world. Clothing does not seem to represent a problem for the heavenly creatures of God's domain either. Scriptural notations of the appearances of angels in the earthly scene often describe these creatures as being clothed in garments of light. Although angels do not have physical bodies in their ordinary state of existence, they are able to take on physical bodies as they carry out God's purposes in the earthly sphere. Since these beings are not separated from God by sin, then the glory of God provides those coverings that have the appearance of clothing. In their original state of innocence, the physical bodies of Adam and his wife also were surrounded by such glory coverings. The physical eyes of this pair were not capable of penetrating God's glory covering to form an image of those bare bodies of clay. But with spiritual death, God's glory covering was gone. The man and his wife gazed upon themselves with their visual perception no longer blocked by God's garments of light. The first awareness this pair had of their new fallen natures was their perception of nakedness. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. It was spiritual death that brought complete awareness of the nakedness of those human bodies that now were the earthly houses of those two fallen creatures. The new visual appearance of themselves made them ashamed to stand in one another's presence. They knew that they certainly were not fit to stand in the presence of the Lord God, the pre-incarnate Christ. Their first action was to look for something that could be used to cover those bare bodies that stood as a visual testimony of their sin against the Creator. So by their own efforts, they turned to the fig trees of the garden. They took leaves and sewed them together, and they covered themselves with garments made by their own hands. Even at this time, there was still no principle of physical death present in the garden. The removal of the fig tree leaves did not cause the death of the fig tree. 
However, these man-made fig leaf garments were not a satisfactory substitute for the glory covering from God, which had been their previous garments. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Here in this action of our first parents, we see man's futile efforts to provide for himself a covering for his sins by the works of his own hands. Sin brings death. The works of dead hands are not capable of forming coverings that can stand in the presence of God. In the fig leaf aprons of Adam and his wife, we have a picture of man's best efforts to save himself by his own works. Apparently, the fig leaf garments were adequate to divert the shame that Adam and the woman felt on standing in one another's presence. We know that the good works of man do sometimes give the impression of righteousness in the view of other men. However, such good works are never adequate to let one stand in the presence of God. Dead hands cannot do living works. God himself must provide the covering that makes man fit to stand in his presence. We later find that it was the Lord God himself who took the skins of animals, thereby causing the death of the animals, and who made the garments for Adam and his wife that allowed them to stand in his presence. There we have a picture of God's salvation by grace, made possible by the shedding of the blood of a substitute. Once again, my time is gone. We'll continue our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of the third chapter of Genesis. I call this study, The Descent of Man. Let's open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. In direct disobedience to God's command not to eat of it, the first man, Adam, the federal head of the human race, had tasted the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God had said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When Adam partook of the fruit, spiritual death came immediately. Both the man Adam and his wife had eaten of the fruit, and as soon as their act of disobedience had been done, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. However, those fig leaf coverings, the works of their own hands, were not sufficient to let them stand in the holy presence of the Lord God. Adam and his wife were no longer innocent. They had experimental knowledge of evil, and that knowledge had brought spiritual death, spiritual separation from God, their creator. Spiritual death had resulted in the removal of the glory covering, the garments of light that came directly from God himself. It had resulted in the opening of the eyes of this first human couple to ugliness, where they had previously seen only beauty. They were immediately aware that they were naked. They desperately looked around for something to cover their nakedness. Their uncovered bodies were a visual testimony that they had broken the law of God. The fig leaf aprons were adequate covers to permit the two to stand in one another's presence, but they were not adequate to let them stand in the presence of the Lord God. Not only were the first man and the first woman aware of this, but also the coming of spiritual death had brought to them a desire to flee from God's presence. 
sin had broken the spiritual communion that had previously existed between these human creatures and their divine creator. Their desire now was to hide from him, to go their own way as though he did not exist. And this has been the desire of all of the natural descendants of Adam and his wife ever since that time. Unregenerate, natural men, all of us as we come into this world by natural birth, are fallen creatures, and our natural desire is to hide from God. We prefer to go our own way in separation from him. We prefer to find our happiness in the things of the world rather than in the presence of God. The Garden of Eden had been planted by the Lord God himself to serve both as a home for Adam and his wife and as a meeting place for the Lord God to make his special presence known to the first man and woman. The Paradise Garden was a place of fellowship between God and man. Just as the Lord God later chose to make the Tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon places to manifest his special presence to the children of Israel, so he chose the Garden of Eden to manifest his special presence to Adam and the woman. The Hebrew words Yahweh Elohim, here translated the Lord God, seem to have special reference to God in the person of the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ. The scripture informs us that it was the custom of God the Son to come in physical form to walk in the Garden of Eden and fellowship with his creatures in the cool of the evening. As the sun was setting and, in God's view, the new day was dawning, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was there in fellowship with those first members of the human race. In all of those days of their innocence, Adam and the woman could meet him there, spend time in his presence, and then meet the challenges of that new day refreshed in mind and spirit. But with the coming of sin, all things changed. When the time came for the Lord God to come into the garden for this customary time of fellowship, Adam and his wife wanted only to hide from his presence. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Adam and his wife were now fallen creatures, and they were in rebellion against God. They no longer wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to hide. They wanted to go their own way. They wanted to be independent of God's control. This is the attitude that has been a part of all of the natural descendants of Adam and the woman down to this day. When Adam sinned, he fell from his created estate. That image and likeness of God in which he was created was marred. We're told in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. The offspring of Adam were begotten, not in the image of God, but in Adam's own marred and distorted image and likeness. This is the state of every member of the human race as they come into this world by natural birth. King David speaks of this in Psalm 51, verse 5, where he writes, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We as natural unregenerated men and women share Adam's desire to hide from God. We are all in rebellion against him, and we like to go our own way in independence of him. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
Adam and his wife demonstrated this tendency of natural man when they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Natural man tries to hide from the presence of God, but God in his grace is not content to leave it that way. God seeks after men. Men do not seek after God. It was the Lord God himself that called Adam and his wife from their hiding place. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Adam would have been content to have remained in his hiding place, covered only by his fig leaf apron, the pitiful work of his own hands. He had died spiritually, and he was destined to die physically. The fig leaf apron was not an adequate covering to allow him to stand in the presence of the Lord God. Adam had sinned, and the wages of sin is death. When sin is present, the wages must be paid. There was no death involved in the preparation of the fig leaf apron. The Lord God could not accept that covering for Adam's naked, sin-infested body. Adam and his wife were only following the natural instincts that are a part of all of us, their descendants, when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Where previously they had looked forward to these daily visits with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the one whose goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting, as he, in special presence and in bodily form, walked in the garden to commune with them, they now held only fear and dread. They wanted to hide. They wanted only that he separate himself from their presence and their world and let them go the way that they had chosen without fear of judgment. Adam knew that his sin was not hidden from the Lord God. He knew that the fig leaf apron was not an adequate replacement for the covering of innocence that God had previously supplied for him. Therefore, both he and the woman tried to avoid the personal encounter with the Lord God, which they knew was inevitable as the time of his personal appearance in the cool of the day approached. They hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. There was no effort on the part of Adam and his wife to seek God in order to find out if the deed that they had done could be undone. Fallen natural man does not seek God, he only hides from him. But God is not content to let his fallen creature continue in his ways of death. It's the Lord God that seeks after man, not man that seeks after the Lord God. Adam and his wife were hiding amongst the trees of the garden. They hoped that the pre-incarnate Christ would simply remove his special presence from this garden meeting place, that he would go his way without any personal encounter with them. They were willing to go on in their spiritually dead condition. They were willing to go on to the inevitable physical death that would forever seal them in their position of separation from God. But the Lord God was not willing to leave it this way. This very same person of God, several thousands of years later, while walking the earth in the flesh of humanity, said, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That very one called out to the fallen first man as he hid from him, Adam, where art thou? Certainly Adam's hiding place was known to the Son of God. He had observed the temptation of the woman. He had observed her as she yielded to the temptation as she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave also unto her husband, and he did eat. He had observed the spiritual and physical changes that came over this pair as they died the spiritual death. He had observed their own feeble efforts to cover their sin as they made the fig leaf aprons. He had observed them as they frantically looked for a place to hide among the trees of the garden. But the Son of God loved the man and the woman, the creatures whom he had made. He loved them in spite of their failure and their sin. 
He was willing to call them from their hiding place, to bring them out into the open so that they could face their sin, confess it to him, and place their future hope upon his grace. Adam, where art thou? My time is gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study of the third chapter of Genesis, a study that I call The Descent of Man. Let's open this seventh message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam realized that it was impossible to hide from the Lord God, and that it was impossible to avoid that personal encounter from which he would have liked so much to have escaped. The federal head of the human race next tried to justify himself by excuses, but he only succeeded in condemning himself. I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam confessed that he heard the voice of the Lord God as he walked in the garden during that normal time of fellowship and communion. He confessed that he had hidden himself to try to avoid an encounter. But he excused himself for his actions by saying, I was afraid to meet with you because I was naked. However, rather than excusing his actions, this statement of Adam's only resulted in self-condemnation. Adam's knowledge of his own nakedness was a result of his disobedience of the Lord God. It was a result of his eyes being opened to an experimental knowledge of good and evil. The glory covering of light that had enshrouded the physical bodies of the man and the woman in their state of innocence had been removed at the moment of their spiritual death. The eyes of this human pair had not been able to discern their own physical nakedness while the spiritual covering was present. However, with the coming of spiritual death, the naked condition of their human bodies was only too obvious. So Adam's excuse for his action in attempting to hide from the Lord God was really an admission that he was guilty of breaking the commandment of the Son of God. The Lord God's question in response to this excuse of Adam totally devastated any hope that Adam had to self-justify his guilt. Further, it demanded complete confession. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The Lord God stripped away all of Adam's pretense of innocence. Adam was completely exposed before his creator, the Lord God. Although this encounter between Yahweh Elohim 
and the first human pair is filled with typical meaning, we see fallen man trying to hide from the presence of the holy God who had created him, and God himself, in his grace, reaching out to this creature that was in rebellion against him. Nevertheless, it is also a historical event. This is the record of an actual event that literally took place during those early years of the history of the earth. Adam is a historical character, and the woman, his wife, whom he later named Eve, is a historical character. The daily visits of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, in visible form to the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day are also historical events. This special Hebrew combination name, Yahweh Elohim, that is translated the Lord God, is a specific designation of the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ. In other parts of the Old Testament, we find this same person of God designated as the angel of Yahweh, or as we often read it, the angel of Jehovah. There are several recorded incidents in the book of Genesis where we find the Son of God appearing in visible presence to certain of the patriarchs. One of these incidents is recorded in Genesis chapter 18 and verses 1 through 3, where the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. These verses tell us, and the Lord appeared unto him, Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he, Abraham, sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he, Abraham, lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, and bowed himself toward the ground, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Consistently, throughout this chapter, one of the men is called and is addressed as Yahweh, or the Lord. This record leaves no doubt that the one who stands in the presence of Abraham in human form is none other than God himself. He is the pre-incarnate Christ, come down in bodily form to fellowship with Abraham and to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Another passage of scripture that records an appearance of God the Son in human form is found in Genesis chapter 32. Here the appearance of God is to the patriarch Jacob, or Israel, the grandson of Abraham. It is just prior to Jacob's encounter with his brother Esau, when the two meet as friends rather than enemies, after so many years of hatred between them, that Jacob is left alone. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 24 tells us, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. In the verses that follow, Jacob is blessed by this man with whom he wrestled. As a part of the blessings, his name is changed from Jacob, the supplanter, to Israel, the prince of God. In Genesis chapter 32, verses 29 and 30, we read, And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. This one, in the physical form of a man, was God himself, Yahweh Elohim, God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord God of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. He is the one of whom Micah speaks in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, when the prophet predicts the exact birthplace of Messiah. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, 
from everlasting. Micah says that this one, who is to take on the flesh of humanity and be born into the world in the town of Bethlehem of Judah, is the same one whose ministries and appearances in the earth have been from of old, from everlasting. He is the one who took the form of a man and physically walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. He is the one with whom Adam and his wife fellowshiped. He is the one from whom Adam was hiding after the man and the woman had partaken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He is the one who called to Adam, Where art thou? This call brought the man and woman from their hiding place to stand before the one who was their creator, yet because of their transgression, the one who had become their judge. In this scene that took place in the garden that the Lord God had planted, we can be sure that the Son of God was actually standing before the first man and first woman, and that he was visible in the form of a man. Adam and his wife were actually looking upon a physical form, and that form represented the special presence of the one who, thousands of years later, was to be nailed to a Roman cross to pay the penalty for their disobedience. The pre-incarnate Christ stood there amidst the trees of that paradise garden in the form of a man, clothed in the garments of light that are the manifestation of the glory of God. This physical manifestation of the presence of the Son of God must have been very much like the view of him that Daniel the prophet described in Daniel chapter 10 verses 5 and 6. Then I lifted mine eyes and looked, and behold a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Before this divine personage stood the man and the woman, their naked bodies being scarcely covered by those aprons of fig leaves. It was in this state and condition of things that the man Adam offered his feeble excuse for hiding from the presence of the Lord God rather than the coming out to meet him as he had done in the past. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The person of God who called to Adam was the very same one who many years later in the flesh of humanity said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God is still calling to lost men and women, spiritually dead men and women, who have no ability by the works of their own hands to make themselves coverings fit for the presence of God. He still says, Whosoever will may come. He himself has provided the basis on which those who hear his call may come to him. He himself died so that we might live. It is his death that provided the new glory coverings that are to cover his saints for all eternity as they stand in his presence. It is only necessary to respond to his call. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Once again, my time is gone. We'll continue our study of the descent of man on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today.